Good morning, everyone. Thank you so much for worshiping through singing. And now we're going to spend some time worshiping through the word together. My name is Justin Knowles. I'm the teaching pastor here at Ingleside. And I'm so glad that you're here this morning. Uh, I hope you had a great holiday week and a great New Year's weekend. Uh, but I'm also glad that we could be together today to worship the Lord. Uh, and for those of you joining us online, on television, I'm really glad that you could join us as well. Uh, now, this morning, we're going to look at the book of 3 John. So if you've got your Bible with you and want to go ahead and open up there, you can open up to 3 John. Uh, that's real close to the end of the Bible. There's Revelation at the very end, and then Jude, and then the short little book of 3 John. Uh, also get out a listening outline and a pen so you can write some things in along the way. Now, why are we looking at 3 John today? Uh, well, part of the reason is, if you've been reading chapter a day with us, you'll know that it was our chapter of the day reading yesterday. Uh, but I also think there are some very practical applications in the book of 3 John uh, that can be really helpful for us going into a new year. A time of the year when many of us are thinking about our own lives and what we might want to be a little different to this coming year. I think 3 John can really help with that. In fact, in this short letter, uh, we sort of meet four different men. And as we meet them and learn a little bit about each one of them, it raises some questions for us uh, that can help us evaluate our own hearts and lives going into a new year. Because look, I of course don't know what all God has planned for you in this coming year. But I do know this, if you're in Christ, his plans for you include making you more like Jesus. We know that for sure. And so perhaps he'll use some of these truths and some of the questions that we're going to ask today in that process. So let's take a look at it. Third John, starting in verse 1. The first person we meet is a man named Gaius. You see, I've called him Gaius the Beloved. Uh, because John, the author of this letter, repeatedly refers to him as beloved. Uh, Gaius is the primary recipient of this letter. And uh, right away, we learn some things about him. So here's how it starts. It says, the elder, that's John, who's writing, to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. And let me just pause there for a second. Obviously, John is praying for Gaius and praying for his overall well-being, including his physical health and also his spiritual health. But the way it's worded here, it's possible that he's praying something like this. He's sort of praying that uh, Gaius's physical health would match his spiritual health. Uh, we're going to see in just a minute that he was doing really well spiritually. And so we don't know for sure if maybe there was some sort of physical issue going on, something specific. Uh, but it's likely that, he's, that John is praying that uh, Gaius' physical health would match his spiritual condition. I wonder if somebody were to pray that for you and God were to answer that prayer. How would your physical health be? if the prayer was that it would match your spiritual condition. Well, John could pray that with confidence here for Gaius, and he was doing well spiritually. We see that in the next couple of verses. Verse 3, he says, For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you were walking in the truth. 
I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. So it really sort of celebrates a couple of things here in Gaius' life. The first has to do with Gaius' beliefs, uh, that his beliefs line up with the truth. That's what it means when he says that the brothers testified to Gaius' truth. It's not just saying whatever Gaius thought was true and the way that's kind of used in our culture today of your truth and my truth. That's not what he's talking about. He's saying that Gaius' beliefs line up with what God has actually revealed. And John's celebrating that, saying that's such a good thing, what I know about your actual beliefs. But he didn't stop there. He didn't just say, man, I'm so glad you know the truth and you believe the truth. He points out that Gaius was walking in the truth. That means he was doing it. He was living it out. He was putting it into practice. He was actually obeying what the Lord had said. He was actually following Jesus practically in day-to-day life. Which means then there was consistency between his beliefs and his behavior. There was consistency between his confession and his conduct. And John celebrates that kind of integrity in Gaius' life. I'm glad you know the truth, and I'm really glad that you're living out that truth, that you're walking day by day in the truth. So here's the first question this raises for us. Would you write this in on your listening outline? Question number one this morning. Am I walking in the truth? And as with Gaius, there are a couple of parts to that for us. One is you got to know the truth. So how do you do that? Well... You abide in God's word. You regularly, consistently read the Bible so that you know what God has said and you understand it more and more. Of course, I know for a lot of people, one of the real challenges, kind of one of the obstacles in doing that is sort of not knowing where to start or or not having a real plan. I mean, it's tough to read your Bible real consistently if you don't have any sort of plan for doing it. And if that's you today, there are lots of good options, good Bible reading plans for a year. Uh, But one I would point you to would be to join chapter a day with us. Text the word chapter to 22828. Sign up to be part of that. You'll receive an email from our lead pastor every morning with the chapter to read that day and some explanation and some application for your life. If you do that, then you've got a plan. You'll know what to read each day and in a way that's really helpful in your life. So we've got to abide in God's word so that we know the truth. But like Gaius, it shouldn't stop there. It's not just enough to know the truth. Do you remember what James said in the book of James? When he said, be doers of the word and not hearers only. Once we know the truth, we've got to put it into practice. We've got to apply it in our lives. So that like him, there's consistency between our beliefs and our behavior. So maybe that's where some of you are today. You've got a good pattern in place for reading the Bible, but there's still some areas of life where it hasn't been fully applied yet. Maybe that's what you need to consider as you ask this question, am I walking in the truth? It's not just do I know it, but am I putting it into practice in how I talk to people, how I talk about people, how I treat people, how I relate to them, how you spend your time, how you spend your money, what you prioritize, what you love. Lots of areas of life. How are you doing walking in the truth? So that's the first question. But then we learn a little bit more about guys. Verse 5. 
It says, Beloved, it's a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. He says, you'll do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. So in these verses, John commends Gaius for supporting missionaries. Uh, That's who he's talking about, these people that had been sent out, and specifically, it says, Uh, They were sent out for the sake of the name. That's the name of Jesus. They were traveling around to tell more and more people about Jesus. That's how we know they were missionaries. And apparently when they got to Gaius' church, uh, he uh, welcomed them. He uh, most likely provided some hospitality. Maybe gave them a place to stay, some encouragement. Very likely supported them in whatever material needs they had, perhaps even financially. But he was really supportive of these missionaries. And John says, that's a faithful thing, Gaius, for you to support missions like that. But it's not just for Gaius. He also says, John does, that we ought to support people like these. Not just you, Gaius, but we ought to. So here's a question that raises. Would you write it in? Question number two. How am I supporting missions? you think about going into a new year, it's an important question to ask. How am I supporting missions? You know, Jesus gave us, uh, his people, the church, he gave us a mission, did he not? Uh, He said to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all that Jesus commanded. And all of us who are followers of Jesus have a role to play in that. And there are different ways you can engage with that mission, different ways you can be part of it. In fact, would you write this in if you want to be part of missions, what God's doing around the world? Here are some options. Write it in. I can go, give, or pray. Different ways to be part of what God's doing in the world. One of those is to go. Perhaps for you that might be a short-term mission trip. Of course, the last couple years we haven't been able to take nearly as many of those as we would really like. Uh, But fortunately, recently, we have been able to send out some teams to different places. And we're sure praying in the days ahead uh, that we can get back to our pattern of sending teams all around the world. And so that might be a good option for you to go in that way. Or maybe it's not just going on a short-term trip. Maybe uh, you're really feeling led to move to a different part of the country, somewhere like a Denver or Portland and uh, partner with our church planning partners in those areas and be part of that work. Or perhaps you're even feeling led to move to a different part of the world for the sake of the name and to plant and invest your life in another culture. And perhaps this is the year you need to take some real concrete steps in that direction. So if that's you, if you think, man, I would love to do a little bit more with missions in any of these ways this coming year, I want to encourage you to get in touch with Lisa Call, our missions minister. You'll see her email address there on your listening outline. Just shoot her an email or call her or catch her today after the service. She's sitting right over here. She would love to talk to you. She can help you take some next steps to know what it will look like for you uh, to be more part of missions and to support that in the way that we're called to. So those are some of the things that we see about Gaius and some of the questions uh, I think it raises 
for us. The next person we meet is named Diotrephes. Uh, Diotrephes is pretty much the polar opposite of Gaius. In fact, you can see I've called him Diotrephes the troublemaker. So here's what's going on with him. Verse 9, John says, I've written something to the church. That's a previous letter. He says, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I'll bring up what he's doing talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and even puts them out of the church. Kind of at the core of Atrophies' issue is that it's one of pride. He says he likes to put himself first. It's one of the first things we're told about him. He really wanted to be in charge. He really wanted to be the guy calling the shots. He really wanted it to be his church, not the Lord's, not anybody else's. He wanted it to be his church with him in charge, insisting on his own way, saying this is how we're going to do things. Uh, Not like a healthy desire for a leadership role and wanting to contribute in the church. He was way past that. Just wanting to be the guy in charge. And apparently he didn't have the spiritual maturity to go with that. In fact, he was rejecting the authority even of the Apostle John, a very valid, legitimate authority for this church. And the Atrophies was saying, no, we're not going to listen to you. We're not going to do what you say. We're doing things my way in this church. That even included him not wanting to welcome those missionaries, the one that Gaius was supporting and welcoming. The Atrophies didn't want to, and he didn't want anybody else to either. And so if they tried to welcome missionaries, he would put a stop to it. And if they insisted, he would kick them out of the church. This was not a good guy. So there's a couple lessons from his life. Question number three. Am I characterized by pride, like him, or Humility. When you honestly examine your own life and your own heart and your relationships, is it more characterized by pride, this desire to put yourself first, to see yourself as the most important, to insist on your own way? Or is it characterized more by humility? There's a real contentedness with Uh, The position and the influence God's given you, even if it's a position of leadership and significant influence, are you using that not for your own benefit, but for the good of others? It's a sign of humility. Some of Paul said in Philippians chapter 2, he said, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He points to Jesus and says, that's the kind of humility that we should have. So how are you doing in that area? Characterized more by pride or more by humility? And if you were to say, well, if I'm being honest, got a little too much pride in my life, what do you do about that? Well, 
Short version would be spend a lot of time with Jesus. And Paul points to him as an example of this type of humility that we're called to have. Spend a lot of time with him. Asking him to humble you. Seeing yourself properly in relationship to him. And then consider yourself with sober judgment, as Paul says in Romans. Not more highly than you should, but with sober judgment. Considering even others more important than yourself. And cultivate practices of humility. Intentionally doing things that are good for other people, even at your own expense. It will help you develop this attribute of humility. So that's one thing we see with Diotrephes. It's kind of a warning here. Don't be prideful like him. You can see some of what that leads to, but cultivate humility. Here's another question it raises right in question number four. It's do I prize and protect the unity of the church? Obviously, Diotrephes was not committed to that. He was causing all sorts of disruptions in the church, major problems, divisions, kicking people out, even when they were the ones doing the right thing. So how are you doing, prizing and protecting the unity of the church? When there is disagreement, when there's differences, when there's conflict, and there will be, when you need to provide some feedback, how are you doing that? Are you handling those situations in ways that are biblical and healthy and that promote unity. I'm very thankful that we have long enjoyed a great deal of unity here at Ingleside, aren't you? And we have long said it is both a gift and a goal that we would never experience the kind of unity we have without the grace of God. It's a gift from Him. And at the same time, we're told to eagerly maintain it. To do everything we can to maintain, to work for unity. And I'm so thankful that that's been true of us for a long time. So let's make sure that stays a value and a priority for our church family in the days ahead. So there's a couple things from Diotrephes. And obviously in him, it's really some warnings. Some things we should avoid. Those are really the lessons from him. Then we meet another person named Demetrius. He's a much better example for us. In fact, you can see I'm calling him Demetrius the example. That's really the role that he plays here in this letter. This is what John says next. He says, Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone. And wouldn't you want that to be true of you? A good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. He says, we also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. So Demetrius is most likely the person who delivered this letter, and he had a great reputation. And so John points to him as an example for Gaius. Of course, Gaius himself was a great example, but even he would be looking to other people at times and be influenced by them. So John says, look, if you're going to follow anybody's example... Make sure it's somebody more like Demetrius and not somebody like Diotrephes. That's true for us, too, to be careful about whose example we're following, who's really influencing us. Of course, ultimately, we're all called to be followers of Jesus. He's our Lord. He's our master. We're followers of him. But we all need sort of real-life examples of what that looks like to follow him faithfully. That's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians. Uh, He said, look, imitate me 
as I imitate Christ. We need those people in our lives. We're all going to be influenced by someone or something. So here's the question that raises. Question five, write it in. Is whose example am I following? There will be temptations along the way, even for followers of Jesus, to follow the example of the world, to just adopt the values and practices of the culture around us. Or to listen too much to people that are sort of successful by the world standards, but man, they're not following Jesus. And we've got to resist that temptation to follow their example and instead identify people who are following Jesus wholeheartedly and make a conscious decision to be influenced by them. That might be for you some people just in your own kind of circle that you know personally who are great examples for you to learn from. There are also great examples throughout church history. What a great resource for us to learn from people who have finished their race and have done it well. So whether it's people right around you today or throughout history, make sure you're following the example of committed followers of Jesus. Last person we learn a little bit about is John, the author of this letter. We of course, met John in the introduction, but in these closing verses, we learn a little bit more about him. So here's John, the leader, the one writing. Verse 13, John says to Gaius, I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. He says, I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, each by name. So one of the things we see about John here is that he loved uh, face-to-face relationships. He prioritized that. He's saying, I want to get there and talk to you in person, guys. And we've already seen, and he said, I'm going to get there and I'll, I'll deal with this diatrophies issue. I want to deal with that in person too. Now, obviously, he was fine writing a letter when that's what was needed or that was the only option and addressing people and dealing with things in that way. He was clearly okay with other forms of communication, but he just acknowledged there's really no substitute for in-person, face-to-face relationships. So would you write in question number six, a question we've been forced to deal with a lot the past couple years. Am I prioritizing face-to-face relationships. Of course, there are times, there have been a lot of times recently where that's not really possible or wasn't wise to be real close to other people. And perhaps some of you are still in a season like that. And in those times, aren't you glad for the other options we have to stay connected to other people, to communicate, to encourage each other, for all those things, to to stay in relationship even when we can't be together face-to-face. I'm really thankful there are other options. But when you're able, there is no substitute for in-person, face-to-face relationships and community. And so going into the new year, as you're able, make that a priority. Make it a priority to be in-person for worship where... You're benefiting from being in a room with other worshipers, and they're benefiting from you being in that room. Make it a priority to be in a group or a class or a study where you're learning and growing with other believers 
and you're serving each other in significant ways. Make that a priority. Last thing we sort of see here about John is we get a little insight into his relationship uh, with Gaius. You see in that desire for him to be there face to face and to talk more. It's so relational. Reminds us of what we saw in the opening verses where he referred to, where John referred to his own children, meaning his spiritual children. And he clearly considered Gaius one of those. Gaius was someone, we don't know all the details, but apparently Gaius was someone John had invested in spiritually. And now he had great joy in hearing that Gaius is following Jesus and doing well in the faith. It's a source of joy for him. Here's a question that raises for us. Question number seven, would you write it in? Is who am I investing in spiritually? Going into this new year, are there people in your life that you're investing in in intentional ways spiritually? Could be people just sort of in your sphere of influence that you've got opportunity to to share the gospel with or to talk to them about Jesus or help them walk through some things biblically. Could be in the context of our church family here where as you have opportunity to help lead a class or a group or a study and you're investing in others in that way spiritually. Could be very informally in that context even. Could be... uh, Certainly in some of our next-gen ministries and preschool and children and middle school and high school, lots of opportunities to invest spiritually in the next generation. It can also take place in the home. Uh, For those of you that have children in the home, there's an opportunity for them to be your spiritual children, for you to invest spiritually in them, for you to point them to Christ. To lead them in times of family devotions and family worship. For you to help your kids navigate specific issues biblically and with Christ-like wisdom. Which I love what Charles Spurgeon said. It's a real challenge to parents. See it on your listening outline. Spurgeon said, it's very grievous to see how some professedly Christian parents are satisfied so long as their children display cleverness in learning or sharpness in business, although although they show no signs of a renewed nature. If they pass their examinations with credit and promise to be well fitted for the world's battle, well, their parents forget that there's a superior calling involving a higher crown for which the child will need to be fitted by divine grace and armed with the whole armor of God. Alas, if our children lose the crown of life, it will be but a small consolation that they have won the laurels of literature or art. Parents, would you make it a priority if it's not already to invest spiritually in your own children? And perhaps today you just sort of need a reminder and encouragement to get started and do that. Or pick it back up. But I also know sometimes parents uh, need some help with that. You'd love some resources, some tools in your hand to help you know how to lead a time of family worship. Or how to help your child navigate a specific issue biblically. So I just want to say to you today, we have some great resources available in our bookstore right across the gathering area. And I want to encourage you today, if that's you, 
Man, to just step right over there as soon as the service is over, anyone serving in the bookstore today could point you to our parenting section, and you can get some great resources in your hand today going into the new year to help you invest spiritually in your children and also in others. So let's make sure that's a value, it's a priority, whether it's in the home or in any other context, that we're investing spiritually in other people this coming year. Church family, uh, I love you. I'm really grateful for you. I'm excited about the new year. Uh, I have been praying that this coming year would be one of just spiritual flourishing for you, for your family, uh, and for our church family. Let me pray for us. Father, we, um, we do ask that this coming year would be one of just significant spiritual growth for all who are here, for all who are listening and watching and for our church family. Lord, I pray that you would use some of these truths we've seen in 3 John, some of the questions that it forces us to ask about our own lives. Would you use that in that process of sanctifying us and making us more like Jesus? Would that be a real catalyst for us in the days ahead to grow in Christ? And we pray that in his name. Amen.